Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 184 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Anna Sol Gutierrez, delegate from District 18, a Democrat in Montgomery County since 2003. Delegate Sol Gutierrez sits on the Appropriations Committee in the Maryland House of Delegates. She is the former president of the Montgomery County Board of Education, having sat on the Board of Education for a number of years. She is a former deputy administrator at the U.S. Department of Transportation, appointed by President Bill Clinton. She is the former president and chief operating officer of Sol Quality Systems and the former president of the Board of Directors at Casa de Maryland. Delegate Sol Gutierrez was born in El Salvador in 1942 and came to the United States as a child with diplomatic parents. Delegate Sol Gutierrez, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Fine, fine. Thank you very much. Um, And one of the things that is not there is that most of my life I have over 30 years as a systems engineer working for most of the major uh, IT companies in the area. And for our listeners who don't know, the Maryland General Assembly, like many legislatures in the state level in the United States, is a part-time legislature where you have most uh, legislators actually holding a a simultaneous parallel career to elected office. Absolutely. All of my uh, public service has been while I've been employed. I was a single mom, three kids, had to put them through college, and so I had to be working. And that's what I do professionally, uh, an engineer and uh, senior executive. So, Delegate Sol Gutierrez, I'd like to ask you the first question, which is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Oh, my goodness. The public interest. The public interest is really anything that is going to make the quality of liberty of life better. Mm-hmm. And so I clearly am on the side of those that don't have a voice, that don't have power, mm-hmm. uh, to be totally successful and be able to provide for their family and for themselves. So uh, that's been my focus. And so it's not one single issue. Right. It's what are the, 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 the issues that can make them have a better life from uh, all the economic issues, uh, uh, pay equity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fair uh, wages, mm-hmm. uh, ensuring that they're not going to be discriminated when they are uh, 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 going for work as well as within their jobs. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is key. We have to look to see what our workforce is doing. Uh, and in that area, I focused on the uh, immigrant worker. Uh, who tends to be at the bottom of the pile. Uh, Along those lines, uh, another high priority has been women Mm -hmm. and how women are treated in the workplace as well as how do they have access to health care, how do they have access to opportunity, what is uh, happening to them as, as care providers because we know that the largest segment of our poverty population are women with children. So that's been another focus. And then finally, I would say what the thread that runs through my my public service Mm -hmm. is education. After serving on the school board for eight years and really getting to know what it is that our policies do when we are on the school board. Montgomery County has one of the largest uh, populations in the state as well as a very significant budget. How we use that budget, uh, who, who wins and who loses, 
was a was and continues to be a key interest uh, to me. And so that kind of focus is what I brought to the General Assembly. Uh, I now am on the Appropriations Committee, but my first four years were on the Judicial Committee, where I learned so much, so much about what laws, especially criminal and civil laws, can do to protect individuals. So I know it's a long answer, but uh, I think my public service has been characterized by that focus. So you were appointed to the Judiciary Committee in the House of Delegates. Why do you suppose the Speaker of the House appointed you to that committee? Well, I think uh, I came in with a a brand new group of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really can't tell you. It was not what I requested. Mm -hmm. I am, though, quite thankful Mm -hmm. that I did have those four years of experience uh, because I still reflect. uh, Just for example, my first hearing was on the abolition of the death penalty. It Mm -hmm. took us 12 years Mm -hmm. to take that step. Uh, I also was very close to the whole effort that we had on marriage equality. We weren't even able to open our mouths about that when I first uh, entered the the delegation and look what changes we did. I was also very focused on what were the protections for immigrants. Uh, Mm -hmm. It started there with driver's licenses and now just this past year, we were very, very close to being successful in protecting immigrants through the Trust Act. So could you walk our listeners through, you've been through many different legislative sessions, most um, on the Appropriations Committee. Can you walk our listeners through uh, some of your responsibilities? Some of, actually, some of the processes, you said you were interested in advancing fair wages, uh, av- uh, championing the cause of immigrant workers and women, working on access to health care and education. It's, it's a wide variety of issues. You just mentioned um, uh, the immigration bill that was that, that did not succeed in passing this past year in the state legislature. Can you walk us, the, our listeners, through the processes that, that you go through to get some of this legislation passed, from passing the marriage equality and passing the death penalty to trying um, uh, this past session to advance the immigration bill? What is it, how is it that, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, you're able to help usher these pieces of legislation through the law? Okay, let me start out with a very important clarification. Mm -hmm. No matter what an individual claims, no single individual passes legislation. Not a single person can say, I passed Mm -hmm. such and such a thing. Uh, I think that is something important for the general public to understand. We have to work within the confines and the rules Mm -hmm. of what of what happens at the Maryland General Assembly. So, for example, uh, the committee that you're appointed on, it depends uh, a lot on what is your general focus. Um, and I had no choice on where I was. I did request the Appropriations Committee because I am a numbers person and mm-hmm. I do love budgets because, to me, budgets are a policy instrument. But they're different from bills. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would say Appropriations is not a policy committee as such mm-hmm. where you can sit on a committee that deals with the environment mm-hmm. or you sit on one that that economic matters that deals with economic issues. Um, Health, uh, those are very clear scope of committees. On appropriations, you really go across uh, what is the state of Maryland spending its money on. And so uh, there are very few opportunities to introducing bills specific 
to the budget. You work with the committee. Mm -hmm. uh, you work on subcommittees. For example, I am the uh, vice chair of a subcommittee that's for public service, PSA it's called. It's public, uh, uh, not public service. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, all the, uh, the corrections mm -hmm. uh, budget as well as the administration. So we oversee all of the governor's cabinet and their budgets. So it's a very broad uh, spectrum. Uh, what we're able to do in uh, in the, the um, Appropriations Committee, I think, is very powerful because mm -hmm. in our subcommittees, we are able to have direct uh, oversight mm -hmm. over those sectors which we, uh, we which we are responsible for. In other words, I uh, have the Board of Elections, for example, has to come and defend their budget to mm -hmm. me. So we are able to ask key questions and then require them to make changes or make sure they're addressing issues that are important. Well, let's talk about the Trust Act for a minute. Did it? Which committee did it go through? Oh, that went through Judiciary because it, um, it had uh, legal implications. Uh, so let's walk through what the Trust Act actually is, first of all. What is a Trust Act? Okay, if I could step back. Sure. Because it was in Judiciary, yeah. I personally was only able to work and support it from the outside. Mm -hmm. So that is the other hat that we wear, not only the ones that are in our committees mm -hmm. where we had direct votes up and down to see what legislation comes out of committee mm -hmm. and then goes on to the floor, uh, which is where we're finally able to do something either in favor or to kill bad legislation. Mm -hmm. So it, on a bill like the Trust Act, mm -hmm. It wasn't until it came to the floor that I actually had uh, an opportunity to exercise my voting power. You as were a, a co-sponsor, and oh, you testified in favor of it in the Judiciary Committee. You it, it, delegates do not testify in committee. Oh. It's usually outside. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not considered appropriate for an, a delegate to come and testify, other than the sponsor and the co-sponsors. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the sponsor. The co-sponsors are. Uh, it, people who want to make sure that they're uh, associated with the bill. In this case, mm -hmm. the Maryland uh, Trust Act, we had a very clear strategy. Again, let me back up. Mm -hmm. The Maryland Trust Act didn't appear out of the blue. We've been working on a similar measure for many years. As a matter of fact, I introduced a similar uh, measure under uh, O'Malley. Mm -hmm. to ensure that the state of Maryland would be protecting... Who, for our listeners, is former Governor Martin O'Malley. Former Governor Martin O'Malley. It went nowhere. Mm -hmm. So we've been uh, trying to get protections for immigrants, mm -hmm. um, especially from uh, the over-participation of law enforcement with federal immigration enforcement law. Mm -hmm. So when we, we had it last year, but this year there was, again, another effort to introduce it, and our strategy was to have such a strong base of support mm -hmm. from all from all sectors mm -hmm. that it would it, it, it would be assured of passage if it got out of committee. So what did that mean? We had to get as many co-sponsors as possible. Mm -hmm. And the number, the magic number, is the minimum number of votes to 
pass a bill in in the second and third reader. Seventy one. Seventy one. But we also wanted so to you get have, a veto. How many co-sponsors did you have? We had over we we had over eighty. Eighty-five, I think. Uh, I'm, I, I, you have to check that number, mm-hmm. but it was a, a huge number. Right. It, it, much. Is that for our listeners who aren't familiar with the bill to law process in Maryland? Is that typical to have eighty-five co-sponsors? Absolutely not. We made an effort, and I would say that the advocates, uh, including Casa de Maryland, mm-hmm. were extremely. Uh, helpful in making sure that we had that many co-sponsors. So why did it get out of committee this year, whereas previous years it hadn't? Well, uh, one very smart thing that was done by Chairman Valerio mm-hmm. and by the advocates was to form a task force mm-hmm. that was within the committee that was going to review the provisions of the bill and see how it could make it better. Maybe take out things that were more difficult for people to support and clarify uh, aspects. That was key. We had never and that done that before. that happened during session? That happens during session, So this yes. was like a, a few-month-long task force. It wasn't even a few months. It was about a month. Mm-hmm. Because uh, just to put the timeline, we're in mid-January. We're out mid-April. Uh, we have to make sure that we have hearings on bills. Mm-hmm. So bills usually get introduced uh, in the first month at right. the latest. And uh, the sooner it's introduced, the sooner it gets a hearing. So do you know what the task force did? Did it remove, do you know which parts of the bill, the legislation it removed? It was very complex. Uh-huh. Uh, we're, we're now looking to see what happened during that process, but it mm-hmm. certainly made it much more palatable to a larger number of people. And so how many votes did it get in committee in order to get passed out of judiciary? It got enough. Yeah. <laughs> and how, that's like it's maybe a dozen or so votes? Yeah. Uh, each committee um, has about 24 people, so you need at least 12, 13 positive votes. But this was not even close. I mean, we, we really did pick up everybody, and I believe we even picked up some Republicans, so I'm not sure. That's the insight that you get once you're on the committee. And there's backroom discussions, sure. and there's a lot that's going on. So what was your role in all of this? Well, that's what I wanted to make clear. Yeah. All we were able to do mm-hmm. was to ensure from the outside that it was clear that we wanted this to be a, 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 a number one provision. So we worked with uh, our newly f- uh, formed Latino mm. Caucus. Mm. We finally... Was that were, formed in 2017? It was formed two years ago. Latino Caucus. The, and the, um, it's called the Maryland Latino Legislative Caucus, and it parallels the the African-American, uh, the Black Caucus. How many members do you guys have? All of the delegates, which we are only uh, five in the House, mm-hmm. and, and Victor Ramirez in the Senate. But we also have uh, what's called an associate membership, which is any delegate or senator who has a large population of Hispanics in their district. And so that number, I believe, is close to 30 who are uh, come to our meetings, help us develop the policy. And what's more important is that when we have actions, especially press conferences, sure. that they are participating. So that was the, the major legislation. For that our was priority number one for the Latino caucus it, in the House of Delegates. In the House of Delegates. Was and it cross-filed in the Senate with Vic? Yes, Victor Ramirez had it in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had initially a press conference. We then reached out. This was also something new. 
was to ensure that the Black Caucus and the Asian Caucus were going to be uh, supportive of it and joining us. Mm-hmm. In it. Because what does that mean? It means that you are going to be telling everybody, signaling to everybody that you have the votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, even though you're not in the committee, we had to do a lot of work to ensure that it did uh, get the positive votes in the committee, but then that when it comes to the floor. Yeah. Now, think back. We've always had a huge number of people resisting this. They they do it not so much in that they don't believe that the issue is a, a proper one, mm-hmm. but they look at their constituency. And if they're in a district that's purple, mm-hmm. uh, they say, oh, this vote might be harmful for me. If I could election. just interject uh-huh. and define for our listeners, the color red is often associated with the Republican Party, and the color blue is often affiliated with the Democratic Party. So when Delegate Sol Gutierrez refers to a purple constituency, what she means is this is a constituency that's somewhat down the middle, that there's a fair number of Democrats, a fair number of Republicans, and that it's a kind of more moderate, mixed uh, de- uh, uh, partisan profile district. Exactly. Um, so th- they, that's been kind of, in my mind, I see it as an excuse mm-hmm. to not take uh, hard votes mm-hmm. uh, whenever there's something that's that's controversial. And obviously this is, and in, in today's time, uh, under Trump, who ran on a, on a an anti-immigrant uh, mm-hmm. policy, then it's it it's a safe thing to do to say, oh, this is going to be hard for me. That's why I am really, really happy to see what we were able to do in the House have this you, year. In in past years, in previous election cycles, have you seen politicians and have you seen any of your colleagues take votes? that later came back to haunt them during the election and led to their loss. Well, what, according to leadership, that's why we lost so many seats in the last election. So We're, in 2014, you're saying the Democratic Party lost seats and the Republican Party gained seats in the Maryland House of Delegates? Absolutely, yes. Did yes. you know to what, what factor? Do you know how many, approximately, what the loss I, was? I don't know it offhand, but I'm sure that that data you can find. Yeah, yeah. There was an increased number of uh, Republican delegates, and mm-hmm. and what that means in the long run is that we have to have not only enough uh, Democrats that when push comes to shove, we can make sure that they're going to support an, a bill mm-hmm. uh, that is of interest to the to the leadership, uh, but that also uh, we have to have a veto proof. Uh, majority, especially we, now that we have a Republican governor. And you so, actually overturned a few vetoes this past session. Absolutely. Our, when we have a measure that mm-hmm. is of high priority for the uh, for the Democrats mm-hmm. uh, and leadership generally is the, the, the ones ha- that initiate and support that, uh, then we need to make sure that we are going to be able to pass it with a veto-proof uh, number. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with Maryland politics, in Maryland about uh, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans in the state is about 3 to 1. The, the ratio of Democratic uh, legislators in the Maryland General Assembly to Republican is about 2 to 1. Um, so there's about twice as many Democrats as there are Republicans. The, so the state legislature is, is dominated by the Democratic Party. The, the governor, Governor Hogan, is a Republican. So, um, and then you also find that most legislatures around the nation today are dominated by one party. You have about 33 state legislatures that are dominated by the Republican Party today. 
Um, so it's a very different sort of situation in state capitals as it is in Capitol Hill. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think you need to also uh, clarify that uh, a lot of what's happened nationally is through redistricting mm -hmm. because uh, that can be key not only at the congressional level but at the state level. It, depending on how you redistrict the legislative uh, districts, uh, you can favor one party over another. And clearly that has happened here in Maryland to the extent that we are now seeing a lot of pushback sure. from individuals as to how that legislative process and went. Just as a point of reference for our listeners, if you look at the 2016 presidential election, you find that Hillary Clinton won millions of votes more than Donald Trump, even though she lost the Electoral College, which is to say that there are more Democrats in the United States than there are Republicans, at least voting Democrats. But the but you also find that the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate is are, are both dominated by Republicans. The gerrymandering wouldn't affect the Senate, but would affect the House of Representatives. And you also find that most state legislatures are dominated by the Republican Party. So you find that there are more Democratic voters in the United States but Republicans control most legislative bodies. Well, that's the, uh, the importance of going towards a popular vote for mm -hmm. the electing president. And Maryland, I'm happy to say, was the first state that got on on the list that when there's a majority of states that will go towards a popular uh, vote for presidency, uh, we will then uh, sign a, a compact that indeed we will do that. And Is there any movement to have a constitutional amendment in Maryland? There are. Uh, uh, to well, get rid of the Electoral College? It, it doesn't have to be. Uh, it, we th That's a federal issue. I think we're getting into the weeds of right. that. We might do another program yeah. on that. <laughs> uh, but it does show that we, uh, among the more progressive, because we are a democratic mm -hmm. uh, state, we are moving to change the debacle that I think we all saw uh, happen in 2016. And uh, the, the the constitutional amendment routes uh, is is really not necessarily, that's what this compact is, is all about. So let's just finish up with the Trust Act, if we could. So it gets out of committee. You have a whole lot of support on the floor. Can you speak about how you were able to build that strong base of support from all sectors of society, the different special interest groups, and then particularly what your role was in pushing the Trust Act board once it hit the floor of the House of Delegates? Well, uh, as I said, the coalition was extremely important, and we all worked at it. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, I go back. There's, there's no kings in, in this. We all have to work together. So, uh, you know, from uh, individual conversations, from working with groups that uh, are generally our, our supporters, our base, uh, making sure that we are getting out information, that we have the phone calls coming in, we have the emails coming in, mm -hmm. and that we also had a lobby night uh, organized by CASA and other uh, other very progressive groups. The, what's happened with the issue of uh, defense of immigrants is that I think under the attacks from Trump, Many other groups have embraced this issue as a civil rights issue. Um, we tend to be a very, uh, what is a siloed view in the way that we work for issues as progressives. And so we are all there for fracking, you know, to ban fracking. And we're all there for, uh, uh yeah, or sick leave and yeah. that. 
what I saw coming together uh, in the immigrants' uh, rights uh, movement mm-hmm. is that all of these groups embraced it also as a key part of their agenda. And so it, it, uh, it caught uh, the attention and the support of many more people, especially grassroots uh, individuals. We had just storms of emails being mm-hmm. sent. And I think another very smart thing that we did was to ensure that we had uh, Speaker Bush's support. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many good bills uh, are introduced, mm-hmm. and they end up dying in committee uh, simply because they don't get a green light from leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened uh, when it went over to the Senate. Uh, leadership, uh, President Miller, uh, was clear. Uh, made many public statements that he thought that the the trust act should not pass, mm-hmm. and 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 he and the chair of the judicial proceedings, Bobby Zirkin, mm-hmm. uh, were indeed the, responsible for killing it. Uh, I have no doubt about that. Had it passed mm-hmm. in the Senate, we would have been able to uh, override a veto, uh, which was promised by the governor. And if you were to characterize the bill, what would have been the implications of its passage? Well, uh, clearly now uh, we see the need to clarify what is the role of local police Mm -hmm. uh, in the enforcement of immigration law. Mm -hmm. It's a purely federal function, Mm -hmm. and yet uh, what we've seen happen too many times is that local police work in collaboration or help do that function Mm -hmm. uh, for the federal ICE. Uh, and what is the impact on our community is our community is in fear, mm-hmm. will not collaborate, will not support local law enforcement. So we're, we're actually less safe. There's not uh, the needed support for public safety uh, by our local police when people are no longer ready to collaborate with them whenever there is a crime or they're not reporting their own uh, domestic violence. So it makes us, uh, as, a, as a community, as a municipality, as a county, as a state, uh, less safe if we're undermining the trust that we need to have on, uh, on our local police. And that's why it's called the Trust Act. It is to increase the, the trust that uh, individuals feel when dealing with police because the police will not be able to perform what are called the the federal immigration functions. And what was absolutely fantastic, I just saw yesterday that our Attorney General, Brian Frosch, has issued a whole guidance to every local, state, and county law enforcement, uh, state, Maryland state, Mm -hmm. on what is that they should do and what is what they, they can't do because it would be illegal. Like, for example, detain someone after they've uh, they've been uh, they they've completed whatever uh, jail time or uh, whatever it was that they were uh, they had to do to detain them for up to 48 hours for uh, federal police to come in and take them that is a, a violation of the fourth, fourth amendment and their constitutional rights so I'd like, as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask a final question, which is to ask you to suppose that you're speaking to your immigrant uh, constituency here in District 18 in Montgomery County. I want you to talk to them about 
uh, how you've addressed the challenges facing their community through civic engagement as an advocate, as a member of the Board of Education, as a delegate, why that has been worthwhile, how you've been successful, how, what you would advise them to do, would you advise, how you'd advise them to be civically engaged, and in what, at the end of the day, you hope... hope, hope in 1990, when I was elected, uh, they, there were very few voters, uh, Latino voters. Uh, so even though I was the first Latina ever elected in Maryland, and I wanted to be a, at the board table in the school system so I could represent the growing number of Latino students who were being given a second-class education, I didn't have a, a community, a movement behind me. So I had to build it. And that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years. How? By educating voter registration, town hall meetings, uh, small group meetings, constituency service for the issues that our marginalized immigrant communities have had. And access to jobs, to uh, health care, uh, providing them with health care, providing with ESOL classes. So it's because I am part of this community and I'm part of it every day that I can respond to their needs. It's not that I read it in a book or that I see, you know, from a distance. No, I am totally involved, and they are involved with me. For example, I have a, a, a radio program every Wednesday morning. More people stop me on the street and say, oh, I heard that you had a new granddaughter last week. <laughs> it, it, we are uh, close very close, and they know that they can reach out to me when they have a problem, and they do. For example, we had the whole crisis of CDLs being canceled for people who have temporary protected status. CDL is? Is the commercial driver's licenses. We have, uh, particularly, I'm Salvadorian, the largest number of temporary protected status individuals living in the area are from El Salvador, and that means that they are here legal, with a legal status, and with work permits. Since 2001, they've been able to access jobs that other immigrants can't. And one of those is the commercial driver's license. They can make much more money. Many have their own trucks, their own uh, businesses. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, through an error of MVA, they get a letter saying, you have 30 days to prove me that you are a U.S. citizen or that you are a permanent resident. If not, you lose your, your CDL, your commercial driver's license. Mm -hmm. That was a huge, it was huge in our community. Can you imagine mm -hmm. having your had livelihood. 25 years or, you know, many years of this is your livelihood, and all of a sudden you have 30 days. It was an idiotic, ignorant, young was it person. Legal? It was illegal. It was, it was totally flawed. Mm -hmm. and, but I had to go to the Motor Carrier mm -hmm. Administration at the federal level to get clarification and then lobby and stop our MBA from moving forward with that. They did. They took four or five months before they realized that they needed to clarify. They, it was, they came screaming and hollering to admit their error, but they did. And so uh, we are now kind of back to uh, protecting that. But that, that to me is the kind of typical insight that someone like me, who is very close to the community and can hear, uh, it was at, during one of these radio calls that someone called and said, uh, Doniana, what can I do to keep my driver's license? And I had no idea what was happening. Uh, so that's the kind of direct action 
that in my position I can do, because as a state legislator, mm -hmm. then I can direct the concern to the very top to the head of transportation, to the head of NVA. And uh, it is, uh, I, it's, it's a power that I think is the power that comes with being willing to be a, an elected public official because that entitles you to take action. I'm not going to resolve things, but I can take action to raise issues and to raise them to the, to the wheels of power Uh, in a way that they are forced to deal with it and hopefully to resolve them. So that has been Delegate Ana Sol Gutierrez, Delegate of District 18 in Chevy Chase, Maryland, in Montgomery County. She's a Democrat in office since 03, member of the Appropriations Committee, former president of the Montgomery County Board of Education, former uh, appointee by Bill Clinton, former president uh, of her own uh, Uh, data um, uh, company uh, as an entrepreneur um, and the president of the board of directors for Casa de Maryland, who speaks, uh, and she's also uh, the first Latina elected to public office in Maryland. And she speaks about being a vigilant watchdog for the community. She speaks about how, how she started building her own movement, um, working on education issues, having three sons, and building from there to be a champion for civil rights for constituents in her community. She's focused on a variety of topics throughout her career, having emphasized importance of economic issues such as fair wages. She's really championed immigrant workers, women, providing easier access to health care and education. And uh, we've spoken a lot of this episode about her efforts uh, and, and, and the real behind the room, behind the back room, kind of behind the scenes insight into how the Trust Act was moving through the state legislature and ended up being stopped by uh, President Miller of the Senate and Bobby Zirkin, the chairman of the committee through which it passed uh, this past session. She speaks about uh, public service as a means of finding solutions for constituents. So whether a problem arises, uh, such as the commercial driver's license issue facing her constituents, um, or whether something comes pushed down from the federal government, she's always um, ready to... Uh, to learn about a new issue and, and to go through the appropriate channels to ensure that her constituents are taken care of. And for her, that's public service, and she encourages all of her constituents, whether they are citizens, whether they are residents, regardless of, of whether they've been in politics or not, that there's always something that you can do to get involved. Because as she says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So, Delegate Sol Gutierrez, I'd like to join. thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. This was very, very uh, entertaining and I think informative. I hope that uh, uh, people have gotten to know me a little bit better. And that has been episode 184 of Public Interest Podcast. Thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.